probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome to The Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me again today for this week is... Zachary T. Owen. I am a small press horror author and horror aficionado. Awesome. So uh, yesterday we dug into a bunch of the uh, really exciting opening credits. Today we have some more, much more exciting stuff to talk about, I think. So this minute begins with the uh, credit for Stuart Cohen, uh, who we talked a little bit about yesterday, and uh, ends with the title burning into the screen in one of the you know iconic horror title sequences. So there's probably there's, my personal favorite, honestly. Yeah, it's definitely one of mine too. So um, yeah, let's actually talk about that uh, that title sequence first while we're while we're on it. So yeah, I mean that's I definitely remember this being one of the the you know first things that just really grabbed me about the movie. You know, it's it's one of those things. I love practical effects, and you can tell it's one of those things that's like actually made and not, you know, it's not even animated, which they obviously could have done at the at the time too. Uh, but it's just such a cool, interesting effect, and and very much falls in line with John Carpenter's history of uh, excellent starts to his movies. <laughs> I think it's also a bit misleading. Uh, I mean this in a good way, but I mean. A lot of people going into the film, especially if they'd seen the thing from another world, it's it's basically the same uh, title. I mean, the effect is is very similar, mm-hmm. uh, and it kind of leads you to believe that it would be a lot more like the uh, original film than it is. And I think maybe that hurt the film just a little because, I mean, there has uh, been some discussion about like you know it came out the same year as ET, and people weren't ready for scary alien movies but also people sitting in the theater see like this very old school ufo which is very traditional looking and then this you know the title which goes back to the to the thing from another world and so they're probably thinking oh this is going to be kind of like a traditional uh movie about aliens but then it ends up being this really bleak character driven piece uh with lots of really gruesome special effects yeah, that's true. It definitely starts out more leaning on the science fiction side with this um, this beginning than I, I think I even remember that the first time I saw it being like, what, like, what the hell is this? Like, <laughs> I thought we were watching some like monster movie. Like, why is, you know, it's this kind of UFO thing that starts the movie off. It It is kind of unexpected, I guess, even knowing even when you know what the movie is about, um, you know, it's, it's kind of it's an interesting way to start it, um, especially given that, you know, the events that we see here are happening, you know, hundreds of thousands of years before right. the actual story of the movie takes place, which is very different from the uh, the original movie and the the book too. Which we'll uh, we'll definitely dig into that a little bit later when we talk about the um, the screenplay. So I had a few little uh, notes about the title um, for those who who don't know about how it was made because it's it's kind of interesting. 
it's basically like a big uh, glass aquarium that they filled with smoke and then covered the top of. And on the back of the aquarium, they painted out in black um, everything outside of the letters of the thing. And and like you said, Zach, it's um you know it's exact it's like exactly the same logo from the original movie, um, which is kind of cool. And then they shone a bunch of bright lights through the back of that. And in between the light and the the aquarium, they had garbage bags hanging, and then they would light those on fire so that they burn outwards and kind of make that that cool kind of tearing in space effect. Um, which is like really effective and um, and just such a cool cool way to do it, and it's actually such a simple effect too. Peter Curran is is uh, the main guy who worked on that um, was brought in to do just this opening part with the the UFO and the title, and said that it did take him a bunch of tries to do it, and um, that one time they did it and it only burned out the letters NG, which for <laughs> film people means no good. That's like how you mark a take that's like not usable. <laughs> so that was that's kind of interesting. But uh, it's uh, it's definitely one of those iconic title sequences. It's one of the one of the cooler ones for sure. And I I wish we could go back to that uh, in film. I mean, it used to be a lot of uh, titles were done, you know, with physical, tangible stuff. Uh, the movie It's Alive by Larry Cohen. Um, he just it was very simple, but it was like I believe they were in a basement or some other dark place, and they're just shining flashlights and moving them around. Uh, and the beams look kind of strange, and this is all going on, you know, while we're going through the credits. And the, there were a lot of other uh, movies that used, you know, actual uh, physical stuff for like the logos and you know, the uh, the title itself. And we don't really see a lot of that now. And it's another one of those things that is sort of an art that I think has fallen by the wayside, just as practical practical effects aren't as common as they used to be. And I'd like to see more of a return to that. Yeah, I agree. I was I just saw something. Um, I wish I could remember which uh, which movie. It might have even been a TV show, but in just how intricate some of those uh, title sequences really were for some of that some of those things, where where they're building tons of like models, and you know the letters are actually physical objects that are built out, and you know being suspended in front of the camera or, or you know floating or whatever. You know, it's it's just there's like a whole wealth of interesting ways you can present the title to a movie aside from just, you know, I, I think now, especially for horror movies, it's, um, it's really common to just do like giant text that like takes up the whole screen yeah, um, kind of thing, which, you know, maybe the first time I saw it was like a really bold kind of, you know, effect. It worked. It was effective, but now uh, it's a little bit old hat. Maybe. Yes. Now I see it like all the time. Like I think, um, I want to say the evil dead remake is one of the ones I remember seeing it and being like, uh, okay, I've seen this before. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely, it's something I wish they wish they would continue to do uh, to do now, and they do not ever. <laughs> yeah, I, I really miss it as well, and um, I, I don't know. Maybe it's one of those things that will come back for a while, but I have yet to see it so far. So yeah, I don't think the new Star Wars movie is gonna like you know print out the the opening crawl and like pull it on a sheet of parchment or anything. Like I, I doubt that's coming anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the UFO that happens uh, that shows up right before is a, a really cool effect. I think it's one that, that really, really stands up now. I, I remember uh, what, maybe the first time I watched it or one of the first few times I saw the movie, I remember thinking like, wow, they must have like updated this and done it with CGI. Like they like this looks like yeah, it holds up very good. well. 
Yeah, it's it really kind of does. an underrated effect in the film. I think. I mean, I don't hear an awful lot about it in comparison to the uh, practical effects for the creature. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a very different kind of effect, and and a little bit more, um, I guess, traditional. You know, this movie came out uh, five years after the first Star Wars did, so this this kind of technology was still relatively new. But I guess you know. Um, it's just one of those things that just gets forgotten amongst the all the gory craziness that happens later. But yeah, I love the way the UFO looks. I think it's really it's a really pretty cool effect. Susan Turner is the person who worked on that. She built uh, she did work in miniatures and did some other miniature work for later in the movie. But she was initially brought on just to do this. The UFO is actually about a foot and a half across. And it's got real the lights on the inside are actually real. They're not like animated or added in or anything. Did she uh design it in addition to building it i think so either she designed it or she worked with peter coran who did the title sequence to to design it i'm not i've always wanted to know like why they went with such a traditional design which i think you know i think it's fine and and as i said before it kind of offers an interesting contrast to the rest of the film but yeah that's a really good question and and my first guess is that it's probably I would guess Carpenter really wanted to go with something very reminiscent of the original. Right. Where it is just, you know, much, it's a, a saucer and, the, you know, he recreates a lot of scenes from the originals with them like standing around it and seeing the shape of it and that kind of thing. But yeah, it is, it is kind of interesting that especially right after something like Star Wars came out, you'd, um, without knowing that, you'd think that, you know, the, the UFO design would be something very different than what it is. But yeah, right. it's, it's very traditional kind of flying saucer look. Like you almost expect to hear like the theremin, like, uh, you know, that kind of old school alien movie effect. Right. Uh, I guess it also does sort of go back to Who Goes There, the uh, novella that both movies are based on. More particularly John Carpenter's The Thing than The Thing from Another World. But I remember the, the spaceship at least vaguely being described, you know, basically as just a UFO. And so in a sense um, – Carpenter is sticking to the story and also kind of revisiting some stuff from the thing from another world. Yeah, definitely. And th- this is probably a good good point to kind of talk about that. So Bill Lancaster's credit is in this minute. Bill Lancaster was the screenwriter for the movie. Oddly enough, we were talking about this a little bit before the show that he wrote this movie, which is, you know, lauded as one of the masterpieces of, of horror filmmaking. The only other thing he wrote were uh, two Bad News Bears movies. Um, <laughs> I can't get over that. It's, yeah, it's, what a strange trajectory for his <laughs> Like, I wonder what appealed to him about the thing uh, that he uh, left his little corner of Bad News Bears. <laughs> yeah, it's very weird. He did he did Bad News Bears, and then he did Bad News Bears Go to Japan, and then, for some reason, wrote the screenplay to the thing, and, and then never worked again, never wrote another <laughs> screenplay. Well, maybe he's just uh, waiting on uh, the right moment to put out his uh, screenplay for another Bad News Bears movie. <laughs> Though I it's, think he kind of missed his chance because wasn't there a remake Yeah, a I think while? they already remade it. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe uh, maybe he slept on that one. <laughs> I, it's interesting to note that I guess he was going to be doing another movie with John Carpenter. At the time, he was attached to do Firestarter, which is based on a Stephen King. I don't know if that's a novel or a short story. I believe it's a novel. Yeah, him and John Carpenter were both attached to do that, but uh, the studio pulled it after the thing did so poorly with audiences. That's too bad. I would have been interested in seeing how Carpenter adapted that. Yeah, I don't. I, that's that's one I have not read, so I don't know much about it. But um, is it? Does it seem like one that these two would be fitted for? 
I mean, I think so. I think Carpenter is a pretty good choice for adapting Stephen King. And I mean, he did direct Christine, which I think compared to the the giant list of uh, adaptations of uh, Stephen King books is one of the better entries. And I really like Christine and think it's an underrated film. And I would have liked to have seen Carpenter do more stuff with uh, Stephen King. I, I guess he kind of touches upon that again with uh, In the Mouth of Madness, which is influenced by both H.P. Lovecraft and, and Stephen King. Uh, but I, I mean, Firestarter, I haven't seen the movie in a long time. I don't remember particularly enjoying it, and I know it kind of has a lukewarm reception. Uh, it does have its defenders, but I think it probably would have been a more interesting film if Carpenter had been able to adapt it. Yeah, I mean, that that's a sentence you could probably apply to a lot of movies. <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. That's true. But uh, but yeah, that's I I'd always, I always forget that he did do one Stephen King adaptation with Christine, which you're right, is, is a very, very good movie and stands out amongst the uh, – the sea of Stephen King adaptations, <laughs> there many are so of which many. are not so great. <laughs> yeah, so apparently originally the script, the studio wanted Toby Hooper to write it. Um, so yeah, I was, did read that, which is really interesting as well. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know much about him as a writer. Um, this was obviously just a couple years after Texas Chainsaw Massacre you know, made some major waves. And he, he you know, it's kind of interesting that he did, uh, you know, such a, terrifying and, and kind of gross out horror movie in a lot of ways. And it, he kind of got picked up by the mainstream as kind of right di- different than most, uh, most horror directors kind of career paths. But um, yeah, the studio wanted him to write it and he had started on uh, writing a pitch that had the whole movie take place underwater, which is really weird. I don't know why. So then after that, they moved on to um, they, I guess they pitched the idea to John Carpenter and um, you know, obviously he was a, a big fan of the original movie and he picked Bill Lancaster because uh, Bill Lancaster pitched to him the the uh, Norris chest scene and the blood test scene. So those were all Bill Lancaster. Right, and those are two very pivotal scenes uh, and probably two of my favorite scenes uh, in a horror film. I mean, that, that Norris scene, I wish I w- would be around to cover that one because that moment, it, to me, is like one of the most terrifying scenes in the film and it's something that always sticks with me. Yeah, it's it's pretty insane. I mean that that one's a uh you know, a cavalcade of of amazing practical effects and also like one of those it's one of those movie scenes like, you know, the chestburster in Alien or or uh you know, something else where you'll never forget like seeing that the first time. Like I really wish I could watch the thing and not know that his hands are going to go into that chest because <laughs> it's just like the most shocking thing the first time you see it. It's like you would never see that coming. <laughs> yeah, and that that is the scene where when I introduce people to the thing, I uh start paying attention to their reactions. <laughs> it's such a joy to see how surprised people are every time and sometimes they're repulsed or kind of in awe. It's just such a an amazing moment in the movie, and I think probably one of the most well directed scenes in a Carpenter film. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of the best moments from the movie. So yeah, it's, it's interesting to note that was that was all Bill Lancaster. It seems yeah, like that's a, really interesting. yeah, it seems like that would almost be something that that Botine would have pitched to right. to Carpenter. But yeah, that was in the script. So I know we've we talked uh, briefly about you know you've I think you recently read the the novella that the movie's based on. Who goes there? Yes. And we've both seen the I actually just recently watched for the first time in a really long time the um the original movie just a couple of days ago. So this this would be a you know an interesting point to get uh your perspective as a writer on you know the adaptation process and how you think that 
kind of came about and your, your thoughts on that, given that it's, you know, it is a remake, but it's also obviously much truer to the, the novella than it is to the original uh, movie. Right. And I think that's what appeals to me about the thing as I grow older is that as a writer, a lot of the time I, I feel a little frustrated with adaptations straying so far from the source material. I mean, film is a very different medium and you, you have to make changes. And, you know, if you just straight up shot a book scene for scene, it wouldn't translate well. But there are so many times when the movies are so different that what makes the story unique is kind of lost. And I do love the thing from another world. I think it's a, a very, very solid and uh, pivotal you know, sci-fi movie, and I, I enjoy it for what it is. But as an adaptation, I think um, John Carpenter's The Thing succeeds a lot more. And, you know, I do prefer it over the original film, which is rare for me. But, uh, I mean, the essence of uh, who goes there is is captured. And, you know, a lot of the characters are still present. Um, and John Carpenter and Bill Lancaster also, you know, they still do their own thing. And there's still surprises for those who who may have read the novella and haven't seen the movie, which I don't know a lot of people that, that would probably be in that camp. It seems <laughs> yeah. like most people read it after they see the movie. But, um, I mean, there are enough differences that we could do just a whole show on that. But a lot of the uh, spirit of the story is in there. I mean, some of the pivotal scenes are still intact. And, I like, especially the character Blair, I think mm – -hmm in in uh, carpenters of the thing is pretty much dead on you know as a character uh, he he very much resembles his literary counterpart and some of the other characters are sort of composites or changed a little bit but that character like when i read who goes there i pictured wilford brimley and, and it and it made sense and like he still has the same arc and everything and i really appreciated that you don't get a lot of that with adaptations and all the stuff that is different I think makes sense. It serves a purpose. A lot of the times when uh, screenwriters change something from a novel, it seems like to me, like they're trying to find a compromise, but it doesn't always work. But the thing is probably one of the better adaptations. And I, I think too, Carpenter is pretty good at, at adapting stuff in it. and the screenwriters that he usually works with as well. I mean, as I said before, I think Christine is a really, really solid and underrated film. Um, and even though it's not really a direct adaptation, In the Mouth of Madness does capture a lot of the tone of H.P. Lovecraft's work. And as a writer, I really appreciate that. And um, I'd like to see more of that. I mean, I, I love seeing especially famous, you know, older horror and sci-fi novels adapted. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's like a huge wealth of, of stuff out there. I mean, John Campbell, who who wrote the the novella, was an editor for a magazine, and you know himself wrote tons and tons of stories. It makes me really interested to read some of his other stuff. Right, um, and I believe he he uh, was an editor for Weird Tales magazine. Yeah, I think so. Which is where Lovecraft was, you know, that was kind of his station when he was alive, and a lot of his stuff was published there. So he would have been exposed to at some point. Lovecraft's story at the Mountains of Madness, which is very similar to Who Goes There. And I, you know, I wonder how much he may have been influenced by it. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's a, a through line there, but from there to uh, to Who Goes There to the thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just kind of, I was a little blown away reading this short story because I only read it for the first time a couple of weeks ago. And was I was shocked that, you know, this novella written in 1938 was 
was so close to what I, what I know as the thing, you know, it was down to the characters and, you know, some of the, the science in it. I think the, the novella, one of the interesting things about it is how it, it digs a lot deeper into like how they kind of explain how the thing works and how they, they want to test it. Like the, the blood test stuff, although it's not obviously is a lot more kind of gruesome and, and, little different in the movie but the idea behind the blood test is is there in the in the book yeah everything in the film is uh you know in some part lifted from the book it might be changed uh to a way that makes more sense you know in a movie but i i think you know the thing is very in tune with who goes there and also who goes there as a as a piece of fiction i think holds up pretty well it doesn't feel too much like oh it's this pulpy thing from the 30s i mean there are moments but overall it's pretty fresh and i I, you know i think there's a lot of idea ideas there that carpenter could have gone further with too like uh, there's telepathy involved in who goes there that's right i forgot about that yeah it's the uh, the idea that the thing can also read the minds of other people which you know obviously would would make the movie very different but it definitely augments that kind of paranoia if not only if you don't know who's who but you also don't know if somebody's reading your mind thinking about who's who <laughs> yeah if that literally makes the thing which is also terrifying like just impossibly terrifying to me like how could you ever stop such a thing yeah yeah so it's it's interesting that the original movie is so vastly different yeah and i always wonder why they decided to go that route. i mean i think it's a fine film but as an adaptation it basically fails i mean it doesn't really capture anything from who goes there no outside of the fact that there's an alien that is frozen in the ice there's almost nothing in common yeah it's it's pretty strange it, I, I, my only guess is that maybe it's one of those things where they maybe thought people wouldn't understand or, or thought it would be too confusing to have a creature that looks just like other people but i, I wonder when did uh the original invasion of the body snatchers come out I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, because that's got a real similar concept and obviously went over right. just fine. <laughs> and also based on a, a book. Yeah. So I don't know if it was, you know, Howard Hawks that just didn't, for whatever reason, wanted to go with something different. But yeah, it's it's a it's a definitely an interesting movie and it's got some some cool stuff. I like that the original movie, even though the monster is obviously very different, it's a plant monster than uh, than the one from the story and from the 1982 movie. I do think it's interesting that in the original movie, they kind of dive into a lot more of the like scientists wanting to save it. I think that's one thing that's. Yeah, um, that is one of the most interesting aspects of the film, I think. And it's it's weirdly absent from John Carpenter's movie, especially in like in the 80s. I feel like that was a major trope to have, you know, like in Alien and, you know, all, all these things where the um, the bad guy ends up being like the corporate person or the the scientist who wants to save the the evil creature rather than we have destroy. to study it it will change mankind right <laughs> it's weird that that's not in in carpenter's version a little bit to me i mean i guess no, they, they are very distrustful almost immediately yeah they're like just ready to burn it down like <laughs> right right away there's no question and even in the uh even in the prequel you know take that as it as it is that plays a big role and you know, the scientists don't want to destroy it. And that, that kind of, that's kind of the linchpin and their, uh, their doom, I guess. So yeah, I thought that was, that was one of the weird differences that is more accurate in the, in the original, just that, that kind of feeling is not at all in the new one. Yeah. So I guess 
The only thing I had kind of to mention, you know, I'm a I'm a sound guy. So uh, it's actually kind of interesting that uh, years and years ago, back when I was in college, the textbook that I had for one of my sound for film classes, I had no idea when I bought this for like an, you know, an exorbitant price at the school bookstore that it's written by uh, David Udall, who is the sound supervisor for The Thing. So uh, it's got some really interesting kind of tidbits in it. And uh, one of the things was in the uh, the beginning of the movie here, the uh, the sound of the title burning was just a total accident. They Somebody dropped a quarter on like uh, some metal pan while the this vocoder uh, was running. So some just like total freak coincidence, you know, same, same idea with kind a of... A happy accident. As yeah, we yeah. Call it. Yeah, which is, you know... A lot of the iconic sounds, you know, it's a lot of stuff from Star Wars and things like that are, are come about in the same kind of just total happenstance way. But yeah, so that was that was kind of interesting. And you can kind of hear it if you if you listen. It's got kind of this weird flange sound to it, like when you drop a quarter and, and it starts to, you know, how it kind of rotates, gets tighter and tighter. That kind of weird sound. And then the sound of the actual UFO going by is... Uh, that's Alan Howarth doing that with uh, just making drones, which he did some other drones for this movie, which he says was the exact same drone that he used for, uh, or the same technique at least that he used for Star Trek. So just another piece of, uh, you know, common DNA that those two movies have. So uh, the only other note I have for uh, for this minute, a, a super fascinating one, and that's that the title font is in Al- uh, not the title with the uh, the actual an- animated title, but the uh, the credits are in Albertus M H, <laughs> which you know whatever. But it's um uh, it is the same font that John Carpenter uses for everything, which is kind of interesting. I never really noticed that, but it does. I mean, it kind of puts his stamp on things. Yeah, it's one of those just kind of I don't subtle really things. Call seeing that font and anything else. Um, but whenever I watch a Carpenter movie, I, I could not know that it was coming on TV, whatever it may be. And I, you know, I feel like as soon as I see the titles, I'm like, oh yeah, this is you know whatever something that Carpenter did, and then the title will come up, whether it be Escape from New York or Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah, it's it's I mean, interesting. People say that he, as a director doesn't really have a style i've heard that argument like he, he could just uh he just kind of shoots and his movies are very much driven by you know what's on the screen but i think he has a bit of his own own thing going on i mean he doesn't have any uh he doesn't do a lot of close-ups i don't know if you've ever noticed that no i've never really thought about it a lot of the shots are very wide and kind of distant yeah, and he does a lot of kind of uh, movement. This is kind of a classic filmmaker thing in general. These older guys that started with film is there's there's a lot less cutting rather than just moving the camera, which is right. um, always interesting to me to reframe the shot instead of just cut to something else. That's much more interesting and establishes you know a sense of space and things. But you know, I think I, I definitely think he's got a style. As if, if nothing else, he's definitely got a style in terms of the kind of overarching themes of all of his movies. I think there's there's a lot to say in his movies about perspective in particular, just the way the way characters view other characters and the way he puts you in the eyes of characters, especially with something like Halloween or um, or They Live. It's like very right. obvious. But yeah, I mean, I think he's got a style. It's not it's not as like pronounced as. Yeah, it's a bit more minimal, I think, than a lot of other filmmakers. But that's always been kind of what I've enjoyed about his movies. Yeah, it definitely gives him, um, a, you know, his movies have a lot more range for that, for sure. 
but I, I definitely like, you know, um, from time to time I can be a bit of a typography nerd. I don't know a lot about it, but I like the idea of it. I, you know, I like when credits are done in a way that's memorable and you can tell, you know, what something is just based on the, the font and everything. So I, I, I didn't realize until I was looking into it for this movie that he uses the same font, which is, um, there's a couple other directors that do that. I know uh, Woody Allen has used the exact same font for every movie he's done, you know, which is like 80 movies for the last like, <laughs> yeah. 30 years or whatever. He's used the same font, which is kind of interesting. So it's, it's kind of cool that Carpenter does that as well. Um, so I think that's, that's more or less all I had for, uh, for this minute. Did you, uh, anything else you wanted to mention? Um, I don't think so. I think we've covered all the major points and I mean, really the only thing I can emphasize is just how the title and that shot of the UFO are such an interesting beginning to the movie and tonally kind of opposite of what comes after. I mean, immediately after, you know, once we actually have some scenery, it's just so bleak and barren and, you know, it, it goes from like, Oh, you know, this traditional UFO to like, wow. And, uh, I wish I could articulate it better, but there's something really special about about that contrast that, that I think is really important to the thing that a lot of other horror movies don't have. Yeah, I agree. I think it, it sets the stage in a really different way than most most movies like this do. And it, it definitely sets it up. It puts the science fiction front and center, which is, is pretty interesting. You don't usually get that with these kinds of movies. So, And yeah, and then, like we've talked about, it's a... They're, both the UFO and the title are both, you know, great practical effects. Some that don't really get talked about a lot, but they're definitely, uh, definitely some of my favorite examples of, of why practical effects are still awesome. So, um, yeah, so I think that, that, uh, wraps us up for minute number two of the thing. So, uh, anything you want to plug for day number two, Zach? <laughs> oh boy. Um, <laughs> yep, well, gotta, I guess <laughs> keep, keep it going. In the last episode I did mention, uh, I had been influenced by the thing and a particular short story. And that is, uh, in my, uh, collection of horror fiction called burn down the house and everyone in it, uh, in it. Um, it was sort of incidental, but I mean, everyone knows the, the mutating dog and the thing. And I have a shape-shifting creature in a story called Growth that is like – it's a parasite growing out of a cat's side. Uh, and it ends up looking somewhat like a dog and it has all these limbs. And I realize, wow, like the thing is really that ingrained in me that <laughs> I couldn't even – I couldn't create a parasitic creature that changes form without it resembling in some way John Carpenter's iteration of the thing. So if anybody wants to check that out, that would be really cool. It's on Amazon as well. And I guess that's all I have to plug for today. So Awesome. Cool. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely put the uh, put the link to that. So make sure you check that out as well as um, Zach's new book, Doomsayer. So we'll have links to both of those in today's show. And make sure you come back tomorrow for another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out. Harper signing out.